that lawyers merely rob you, whereas doctors rob you and kill you. I was trying to kind of embarrass because I'm pulling when I should have been pushing kind of thing. We've set it up so that tech cannot kill somebody uh, you know, without our permission. Hey, it's Risk Management Monthly, and it's September 2012. Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, uh, and we're going to give you a show today, which is going to blow your mind. It's on patient safety, and you know what? People have been talking about what doctors do to patients for a long time. Um, Anton Chekhov, one of my favorites, says, doctors are just the same as lawyers. The only difference is that lawyers merely rob you whereas doctors rob you and kill you. Uh, and that was an interesting comment from over 100 years ago. And uh, who knows, Chekhov may be right. Uh, Rick, uh, why don't you introduce our guest today and get us going? Well, actually, it's interesting. Um, this patient safety business has been uh, kind of uh, uh, actively promulgated since the uh, Institute of Medicine a couple of years ago who said we're killing 55,000 people a year and there's been a big 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 push to stop these needless errors and to um, get medicine a little bit more in line with the um, other industries that have safety issues uh, so we are very fortunate to have uh, with us today our Terry Fairbanks Terry is a patient safety expert and in fact I watched recently a video of him talking to about 900 people um, about patient safety, and he was uh, followed uh, the co-pilot of the continental plane that went down in the Hudson River where they were talking about some of these issues. So, Terry, welcome aboard. Uh, we're, we're, we're thrilled that you're going to be spending the, the, the session with us. Um, I'm curious as to how you got into this. Well, thanks, Rick, and I'll first say I'm glad to be here as a longtime listener. I uh, feel like I've come to stardom today. But I'll tell you my history, um, and that is I, before I went into medicine, I was working um, in the safety science field. And uh, my first career, medicine's really a second career for me, and my first career was in industrial systems engineering with a specific focus on human factors engineering, which is what uh, my degree was in. And uh, that that whole field is very oriented towards safety science and in tw towards orienting safe systems. In fact, when I did my graduate degree, I was on the you know the safety track, so to speak. So my career started out oriented in safety science, and I'm like like many of us out there. I was a um, paramedic who had a little time in the ER and loved it so much. I thought I would try a career change. So at the time when I was going into medicine, I um, didn't realize the two careers would merge. But then I graduated from medical school in 2000, right as the IOM report came out. And so it, be, it became a, um, a good career to focus on. Graduating from medical school in the year 2000? What are you, in your teens or something like that? Well, remember, this is my second career, so I'm an old guy too. Oh, yeah, okay. well, that's that, that's good because I was afraid two thousand. That means he's like computer literate and everything, isn't he? I mean, that's <laughs> that's frightening to an old guy like me. Go ahead. Well, you know, one of the things uh, is that this business of patient safety has its own lingo, and um, I'm going to ask you to translate as you go because things like human factors engineering 
you know, doesn't necessarily bring up uh, a clear concept of what that is. So just remember as you're going through this, Terry, that you're talking to laymen here who don't know very much about this stuff. That's a good cue, and I have, uh, I'll take this time. I had planned to talk about what human factors is, so I'll take the cue and talk about it now. Human factors engineering is a safety science that's, that's really a combination of industrial systems engineering and organizational psychology. And the field takes data about human performance and what people do well, how they think, and how they interact with systems and machinery, and uses that data to design systems to not be, well, for several um, different reasons, sometimes for more efficiency, but the area that I focus on is to increase safety. And I'll give you, I'll give you a really straightforward example of that, something very simple, and that is if you were to design a door and you wanted to avoid people pulling on it when they should push on it to exit, if you consider that to be an error. And you could um, put a huge sign up that says push. Uh, but if you put a handle on the door that is a psychological cue to us as we approach the door that we should pull on it, so if you put a pull handle on that door, no matter how big the sign is and no matter how many times you've trained the people using that door not to push on it, their instinctive action as they walk up to the door is going to be to pull on it. And there's good science behind knowing that that will happen and being able to predict it uh, because we know that when you approach a door, a door, opening a door is something you do every day, so you're not consciously thinking about that action, so you're not reading a sign. It's a subconscious automaticity as you approach the door. And so if you wanted to design an error-free door, you wouldn't try to train your users to do it right. You wouldn't put signs and labels up. You wouldn't create policies, but you just make the door have a push handle on the push side and that's how you would bring the error rates to zero. So that's a very basic simple example of how human factors engineering concepts would affect design. Well I think it's a great uh, analogy of, uh, uh, and I, I, was, I was saying offline that I had the same thing happen to me uh, at a hotel yesterday and I was and there was a, a person there with me and I was kind of, kind of embarrassed because I'm pulling when I should have been pushing kind of thing. And um, it's like, don't you know how to open a door? And yet you're right. You see these doors that got these bars across them. You couldn't pull that door if you wanted to. You know it. It's a push door, and um, and it, and your your analogy is very clear. Yeah. Well, no, actually, uh, well, let me say I'm glad that you said that, Rick, because you're foreshadowing our discussion because of a subtle point you made, and that was that you were embarrassed about it, and you were blaming yourself, and. If you think about healthcare systems, when we have errors that occur that are due to bad design, the problem is that all of us on the front lines blame ourselves. And so we don't hear about it. We don't tell people about it. We don't know that 10 other people have done it the same day. And so that is a really good, I think, a good point that you made is that bad design in our culture, we blame ourselves and not the design. Well, Terry, I, I've heard this brought up by a lot of people that in the 19th century and in the 20th century, we built great machines that were run by people. Now we're building uh, machines that people can use and that the machines are so built that you can't make a mistake. Is that the real change that's happening? That could be the real change, and we have the potential to do it if we were to design the ultimate machine. And the problem is that 
we haven't designed many ultimate machines. Now, there are a lot in other complex high-risk industries that have designed machines that are very, very, very low human error rates, and you'll find a lot of them in aviation. But we're not there yet. And a great analogy is our current state of health IT, which I like to call we're in health IT version 1.0. And the problem is, of course, that we're paying everybody to buy 1.0 and they won't have any money to buy 2.0 when it gets better. But the, but the design of these are not ideal. And if you take the example of the whiteboard, the common whiteboard in the ED, think about how that was developed. Really, that's an artifact of work created by the, the workers on the front line, the nurses and physicians that were in the ED. One day, there, wasn't, there weren't enough um, – there, there were too many patients for them to remember, so they put up a whiteboard. And they started using symbols, writing things down that meant something to them to help them track their workflow. And now when they're being replaced by electronic systems – if the systems haven't been designed with the needs of the end user in mind so that the, all that cognitive work is supported, then they're not useful to the end user, to the emergency physician at the front line or the emergency nurse. And, of course, the common uh, reaction to that is to say they're, they're non-compliant or that they just must not be comfortable with technology, whereas the real reason is these aren't designed. We're not spending enough time studying how people are thinking about their work and the different artifacts they need to, to support their work, such as task stacking and resumption of interruptions and all the things you think about what you used to do on the whiteboard that aren't available on the electronic system. Well, you know that uh, this isn't a new thing. I, I, I quoted uh, Chekhov earlier. Uh, Emerson said, we've become the tools of our tools. And he may be <laughs> right in that that unfortunately, instead of us controlling them, they're sort of controlling us without asking, what was the reason? Why did we, why did we build this thing? And it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that it doesn't do what we want it to do. Right. And if you think of a great way to, for me to explain how human factors engineering comes into this that we're all familiar with, is you think about how the iPad and the iPhone changed everything. And that is human factors engineering. What it comes down to is a very intuitive interface was designed that made sense to people without any instructions. You could sit down and use it. And that's, that is a, probably a good way for me to, to illustrate what great human factors engineering is. Are there, um, are there examples that... Um have resulted in, um, you know, I think you mentioned um, this heparin business with um, Dennis Quaid's kids is, was an, a great example of something that could have been avoided had there been some better uh, human factors engineering involved. Right. So this is, uh, this is a great case, and it comes down to a lot of system safety issues. And when you look at it, from the lens of a human factors engineer, when you look at it from a system safety standpoint, you really can see how it could be predicted and, and how, it, uh, how changing the design could change what happens. So let me take a minute and describe the case to people not familiar with it, and then we can talk about the, the impacts. The, the Indiana case that happened several years ago, uh, over a year before the Dennis Quaid case, was a NICU case where f six babies in the NICU were given an overdose of heparin because the one-to-one -one, uh, 
the one to ten thousand uh, vial was taken out of the machine, the drug dispensing machine, instead of the one to one thousand vial. And when they thought they were just giving Heplock material, they were giving the kind of heparin that should be mixed before it's ever administered. And three of the babies died. Three of them had ongoing injuries um, due to bleeding. And this was the result of five different nurses, which I think is very significant. Five different nurses uh, administered this heparin. I think when you think about that fact, it's very clear that it won't fix the problem by calling it human error, trying to train nurses not to do it or to discipline them. But, um, but to do that, uh, to blame it on the people is only going to predict that another case will occur. When you look at the design, you know, there are several factors in that case that occurred, but one of the primary factors was that the design of the vials are exactly the same. If you think about it from a design standpoint, the fact that we use the exact same vial for medications that can only safely be mixed before they're administered, so they should only be administered into an IV bag, uh, as we do for for a medication that can be drawn up and injected directly into somebody. The fact that we use same design vials is a failed opportunity to allow humans to recover from an error because if you are used to always getting a blue vial out of the drug dispensing machine as you've done every day, NICU nurses pull these out multiple times a day to do HEPLOCs. The NICU nurses went up to the drug dispensing machine, they pressed the right button, they asked for the HEPLOC material, but what had happened in this case is that the pharmacy tech, because of a series of errors that occurred before the pharmacy tech picked it up, uh, the tech had stocked the drug machine with the wrong concentration. and. So the wrong medication was pulled out, and in all five cases, the nurses said, yes, I did the five rights check. When you think about it, initial reaction that we all might have is to say, well, they couldn't have done it or they would have seen the error. But if you look at this from a human factor standpoint, there are so, there's very solid data uh, and evidence to show that it's predictable that there will always be a high error rate. If people pick up a blue vial that says heparin on it, they think they're looking at it, and they think they're checking it. Even if they're being careful, they'll see what they expect to see some percentage of the time. And um, in this case, that happened. And all five nurses said they did the five rights check. They administered the the heparin, and and the injuries were created. So when this happened, the drug manufacturer, you know, there was you know a large. Uh, review of the factors. This was identified as one of the factors is the fact that these two vials look very similar. They're the same color, same size, and that this error could occur again. But uh, probably because of legal pressures, uh, and you know, we can't, um, uh, you know, we can't know all the reasons. But the manufacturer said, no, this was the nurse's fault. Nurses should know to check. Uh, they're the final, uh, final safety net. And so there was no change in design. Now, under pressure, they did change, they did offer an alternative that cost more with a better designed package for the high concentration heparin. But it was not, the other one was not recalled, and, there, uh, the, and the other one did cost more. So not all hospitals went to it. So if you fast forward a year later, the same sequence of event happened when Dennis Quaid's wife went in uh, to a very fancy hospital and had. Two, uh, two twins, and because of the similar sequence of events, the, 
the overdose occurred. And the, you know, a lawsuit's never good, but I have to give some credit um, because in this case, the physicians and the nurses in the hospital involved are not being sued. Uh, the lawsuit is against the the manufacturer because the contention was they should predict that this error would occur given the design. Very, very interesting. And you can envision in medicine that that's just one of maybe a hundred things that could um, be fixed if we uh, just just thought about it. And, you know, there have been these efforts to do these um, uh, patient safety uh, initiatives like uh, where you uh, right side, uh, you, uh, you affirm that you're taking off the right leg you know, rather than the left leg and those kinds of things because there's been all of these embarrassing incidents. They're, they're not super frequent, but they're um, frequent enough that, uh, that uh, we, we've come up with these systems. But sometimes, you know, you get the idea that one size fits all. And so when they do these things, when they have, what are they, what's it called when they, they do, it's called a pause or a, um, time out. Yeah, time, time out. out. Yes. Yeah. Um, they basically, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> painted that brush over the emergency department. So we needed to do a time out to see if that was the person whose shoulder needed to be reduced. We didn't want to reduce the wrong shoulder kind of thing. And so sometimes it became a little silly uh, because um, it because it was obvious what which shoulder needed to be uh, fixed. And so um, there becomes these layers and layers and layers of procedure that are added on, which um, are often viewed as tedious and um, aren't, aren't are and are not taken seriously. You know, risk management. Uh, the real risk is still to the patient, not to the doctor. I mean, we handle our risk problems with insurance money. Patients handle it by burying, uh, being buried. So I think that uh, the real risk there, if you're really into risk management, the best thing to do is have, have nothing to fear. I mean, make it so that there aren't mistakes and, uh, and things are a lot better. The only way to avoid uh, problems with risk management is not have things go wrong. And, and I agree that there are certainly human engineering things we can do that make things happen differently. And I think that we've been a little slower than some industries, and that's because we don't actually suffer the same way the patient does. In the airline industry, if the pilot doesn't pay attention, he hits the ground first. He understands the problem. That doesn't happen with medical people. Yeah, I like I, I like the uh, analogy you're using, and I think you're right. In fact, when we look back to 2000, when the IOM report came out, uh, you know there was quite a lot of publicity, and that's when patient safety really came into the front light. Although lots of people had written good papers and shown the problem before then, that's when it came to Congress's attention and and to the public's attention. And really since then, in the last 12 years, we've seen a huge focus on patient safety. We've seen every hospital now has somebody in the C-suite that's wholly responsible for safety, or sometimes safety and quality. Um, and we have had a huge amount of federal funding go into this. In fact, when the IOM report came out, one of the results was a congressional mandate that we reduced error uh, in, mel- in medicine by 50% in the next five years. And at that time, that felt like it would work if we really focused on it. 
And I think it's worth going back and looking, looking at the data. You know, several people have written papers uh, to demonstrate the change that we've seen over the last decade since this report came out. And we really haven't gotten better as a nation. If you look at the data all overall, we're still having just as many adverse events, uh, preventable adverse events in healthcare. And I think this really ties into our discussion topic today. I think you're right, by the way. Um, I think, Greg, we should point out that the best risk managers around the country are ones that really are focused on risk to the patient because in the long run, they'll make a, the difference. But the how have we done it in the last 10 years or 12 years is the question. And the problem I submit is that we're still focused on correcting individual performance. And the reason we haven't gotten better is we were already good at that. We already have really well-trained people that come to work every day to do the best job they can or very conscientious or checking and double-checking things. And yes, there are some exceptions to that here and there, and they're taken care of in a disciplinary process. But when you design a system, you design it for the average worker, and the average worker in healthcare is already very, very conscientious. Yet those people, we still make we still make errors. And in fact, if you look at studies that have come out over the last five years, they've actually some have shown adverse event rates getting worse. So this ties into human factors and system safety because our solutions, if you think about the major pushes and the major solutions that we've had over the last decade, they really focus on fixing the person rather than embracing the fact that humans make mistakes. Remember, we learned that when we were three from our parents. Everybody makes mistakes. Yet in healthcare, we're trying to design a safer system by trying to have people not make mistakes, which is not possible. If you ever hear somebody suggest that our goal is zero errors, then you know that they don't have much credibility in terms of how to do that because the way to solve a safe or the way to create a safe system is to accept the fact we'll have human error, embrace it, study it, figure out where it's going to be, and when it can impact a patient, then design the system so that we reduce the error. It's interesting you say that because McDonald's 50 years ago uh, decided that they were going to hire average six pimply-faced 16-year-olds to work. So how they were going to maintain a quality product was when you put the fries in the French fryer, you push a button. It beeps in so many seconds, and they have to take it out. And if they haven't sold those fries within a certain number of minutes, they have to be tossed. And they didn't leave that up to each kid to decide how he was going to cook his fries or when to throw them out. The machine did it for him because they just said, this is who we hire. We can't leave it up to them. And you know what? I don't think that's a bad. I don't think that's a bad way of doing it. Although the trade-off has been, and it's interesting that you bring up at McDonald's that uh, somebody was just commenting a couple of days ago about what the operational manual uh, for running a McDonald's is, and it's like three telephone books. They tell you exactly what to do, uh, um, uh, exactly to the to the uh, nth degree, and so. Um, if we start doing that on healthcare, you know, it's, it becomes, um, it's not, it's not truly analogous. Um, I do know that, you know, we have gotten much more organized in terms of our approach to safety. And certainly that has been focused in the administration of medicines and operative procedures, but we still have this, you know, human factors element, which allows 
people to make judgmental mistakes that are probably going to be very, very difficult to, uh, to, to fix. Uh, Terry, there's this guy in New York who came up. I think he's in New York or maybe Boston. This guy wrote about checklists. But, right. You know, yeah, I think that that seems to make a lot of sense. Well, actually, Rick, those two. It's great that you said those two things together because the the I, I this leads into a discussion about complex systems that really applies to both things you said, and checklists are a really good solution for a if you if you well actually let me start by saying the science of complexity um, has defined systems to have four main types of complexity: simple, complicated complex and chaotic. And the difference between the first two and the second two are that simple and complicated systems are ordered and constrained in a way that allows things to be predictable so they can be reduced to a set of rules. And what's really important, and the point I want to make here, is that some safety solutions are really, really effective in one level of complication of a system, but not in others. So a checklist works very effectively in a simple and complicated system. Whereas complex systems or chaotic systems, which are unordered and do not allow prediction of cause and effect, so they can't be modeled or forecasted, if you apply a checklist in that system, they are not effective. And what has happened somewhat, and the same goes for protocols and procedures, what has happened is that in healthcare, there are simple and complicated subsystems. So there are processes that we do that are more like an assembly line, and procedures, protocols, and checklists are very, very effective in those parts of healthcare. But what happens is we're a little bit on a bandwagon with some of these solutions because it was shown to be good in one environment. We believe it can be good in any environment. We have to take a step back and look at the system that we're trying to apply it to. And emergency medicine is a great example. There are not a lot of complicated and simple subsystems within the ED. There are some, but most of the world we live in is a complex system where checklists probably won't work. And the same goes for protocols and procedures. And I, I love to say that if you have an adverse event and you do the root cause analysis and you find that you think that a process or protocol or procedure will be the answer to the problem and you don't look at any system changes, then the only person that benefits in the long run is the plaintiff's attorney. The next time the same event occurs, predictably occurs, uh, because of course now in addition to everything else, now you also have a policy violation. That's true. I mean, you can paint yourself in a corner by um, doing that. I've actually you know, seen that happen. And sometimes it's better not to write down these, these kinds of things, because once you violate your own policy, it kind of makes it easy to say, well, there you go, doctor. Right. And even more importantly, maybe the policy change was not the right solution. And actually, to make things a little more difficult for us in healthcare, in the field of complexity, there's a subsystem of complex systems, and that's called a complex adaptive system. And healthcare is a complex adaptive system because we have people that know how to do things well and so they're constantly adapting to the complexity of the system to do things as safely and efficiently as they can. And what that does is it creates, over time, it creates a deviation from 
the process as it was initially prescribed. And in healthcare, we tend to think of those deviations as a negative thing and sometimes even a disciplinary thing. We look at them, we call them workaround strategies, and workaround strategies have a bad name in healthcare. But often, quote, workaround strategies or adaptions to the system are actually the people in the system that have found a better and safer way to do it. Now, obviously, that's not always the case. Sometimes it's for the wrong reasons. But my point is that when you have a workaround strategy or you have the vast majority of people on the front line doing things slightly differently than the managers think that they're being done, the first response should be to look at it carefully to see if it's better or safer and maybe the system should be changed to accommodate it uh, rather than seeing it as a violation or something that requires discipline uh, like a workaround strategy. Actually, you see these workaround strategies all the time in association with electronic medical records. First, they get scribes uh, to be the interface between the the, uh, doctor and the electronic medical record, which adds another layer of variability and cost uh, because fundamentally, in, in many cases, the electronic medical record is basically slowing them down or they don't see the value in it, those kinds of things. And so um, it's pr- they're pretty notorious. Another example of workaround strategies is uh, you see these billboards now telling you what the weight is in your local emergency department. And there's uh, computer applications that tell you, you know, which ER in your area has the shortest waiting time. Instead of getting instead of getting rid of the waiting times, the workaround is to tell you where where the shortest wait is. Right. You mentioned health IT, and I think it might be worthwhile for me to give a, a health IT example of how the design can impact the error rate. There's a popular in the former institution where I worked, the ED where I was working, had a fairly popular emergency department information system that was in many hospitals in the country. And the prescription writing task on that, so you could, the prescription writer allowed you to print out prescriptions. And it was a fairly cumbersome user interface. But one of the key issues that caused errors was that when the physician wrote a prescription, they had to follow the order of the blanks in the IT system. So you'd pick Bactrim, it would pop up, and it, the first question you had to answer was how many tablets should be dispensed. Then the next question was how many tablets per dose. Then the next question was how many doses per day. And if you think about it from a cognitive flow standpoint, that's the opposite um, order then emergency physicians think about what they're doing. If you're going to order Bactrim, you think about how many, do- how many tablets per dose, how many times a day, and then you do the math in your head. So the last thing you, that you want to enter is how many tablets are dispensed. Now that may seem like a, like a small thing, but that actually increases the error rate substantially when you're cre- having people do math in their head before they've actually thought through the individual factors in the equation. And not to mention the fact that, you know, it's a computer system. Why are we asking the humans to do the math when we know that humans are less reliable at math than computers are? And that's a, a, a kind of a concept in systems engineering that is called task allocation. And the idea is that in any task that needs to be done, you think about who's going to have the lower error rate and you have that person or that machine do that task um, to, to reduce the rate of the, the overall error rate in the system. Uh, Terry, there, there have been um, these conversations about 
linking medicine to the crash on the Hudson. Where are the analogies there? Well, the um, the anal- I guess let me answer that by saying that I'm a I'm a private pilot. I am very familiar with aviation. Human factors engineering is a is a very very heavy field in aviation. In fact, it was the roots of the field come from aviation. So I know a lot about aviation safety. And it, in my career, I've often given talks about analogies between aviation and healthcare. And one of the um, things that I often hear from people is, well, you know, we're different from, from aviation, so it really doesn't apply. And you can think of lots of, lot of differences between aviation and healthcare. But the, the, when we talk about the Hudson River, we talk about the similarities because there are many, many similarities. In fact, I, um, I recently was speaking to a fairly legendary safety engineer in aviation and asked him what he thinks the analogies are between um, the journey to safety that aviation has gone through in the last 25 years and what healthcare is just starting. And he said, well, the first and most important thing is 25 years ago, when there was started to be a new focus on safety in aviation, we were using the nuclear industry as an analogy for a safe, complex system. And everyone in the aviation industry would walk around saying, it doesn't help us, we're not like the nuclear industry, and it doesn't apply. So that's the, I, I thought that was funny that he said that's the first similarity. But in aviation, they have many, many of the same features that, um, or 25 years ago, they had many of the same features that we do today. They had a very hierarchical structure where there were um, team issues, and there are many, many cases where you listen to the black box recording, and you can hear the flight engineer and the first officer talking amongst themselves about the errors that the captain is making, but not telling the captain, and that continues right up until the crash. And we have many, all of you can think of examples where that happens in healthcare, where the nurse um, or the resident or somebody lower on the hierarchical structure felt like things weren't going right but weren't comfortable um, speaking up. So that whole team training hierarchical structure issue is one, uh, one big similarity. Another one is the... Um, the heavy use of IT and the heavy and the heavy interaction with machines. We, you know, when you're in a cockpit, there is a lot going on. In fact, there's so much task work that um, they use automation. You know, um, uh, pilot um, automatic pilot systems are not made so the the pilots can go get coffee. It's made to reduce their task load in very high task situations like takeoff and land, and particularly in landing. And there are times in healthcare when we have the same problem. We have many, many tasks going on, and we have very few automations, but we could benefit from that. So those are a couple analogies um, that I can think of right off the top of my head. But I think the best way to look at it is overall the system safety engineering approach that, that aviation has used over the last 25 years has brought them to incredible safety rate. There, In the last decade, there has not been a crash of a commercial aviation in any of the big carriers. There have been regional crashes, and they have a different safety system and a different safety profile. They're more like healthcare um, than, the big, than the big carriers do. Yeah, I can see where there's a lot of differences uh, between risk management in medicine and in airplanes, because no airplane ever asks for a note for, to get off of work or uh, 50 Vicodin tablets. So there's certainly a, a lot of things which are not analogous, but the fact cannot be avoided that they get into those planes 
There are 26 million takeoffs and landings a year in the United States. And uh, with almost no deaths, it, it, I think it's amazingly safe. I, you know, people say, oh, don't you worry about flying all the time. Actually, I'm very comfortable when I fly. I say, you know, it's, I drop off asleep. Because it's the drive to the airport you're worried about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm, it, particularly when I land at midnight, uh, I know that on the way home, the number of drunk drivers actually is, is, is increased. And uh, I could get killed on the way home. In fact, what is what is the data? You're a lot more likely to get hurt in the drive to the airport than uh, on the plane flight. And I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, and I think this this goes back a little bit to our discussion about complexity. A lot of the pro- aviation is full of a lot more simple and complicated subsystems versus healthcare, which has more complex subsystems. And so. It, many of the things like checklists that, that do work in aviation won't work in all areas of healthcare. So that's certainly a big difference. But if you look at it at a more micro level and you think about different safety engineering solutions, that you the, the worlds are full of analogies. And I'll, I'll give – let me talk for a minute about types of human error. And one thing that aviation did very early on is recognized – the three types of human error that that many of your listeners may be familiar with because it's fairly popular in the patient safety literature and it's credits given to Jim Reason um, who came up with the hierarchy between knowledge-based, rule-based, and skill-based error and actually as a side note, he he adapted a Rasmussen model um, but that's sounding too techy. I just had to give the credit. But anyway, skill-based errors are human errors that occur when we're in automated routines. We're doing something every day. We do it all, all the time. We're getting the milk out of the fridge to put in our coffee. We're going through a door. And skill-based errors are errors that generally are, cap, are um, characterized as slips and lapses. And they require little conscious attention. And this is getting this is the idea of getting the wrong heparin out of the drug dispensing machine. And the key point here, and what aviation learned a long time ago, and we have not learned yet in healthcare, is that slips and lapses cannot be fixed with training, discipline, education, policy, or labeling. Slips and lapses, the rate will occur at the same rate after all those things occur. Now, the other levels, like rule-based errors, which are misapplying a good rule or not applying a good rule or or maybe applying a bad rule, those can um, those can be fixed by some of those issues, by some of those solutions. As can the third level, knowledge-based errors, and those are the ones where you're you're doing the most unfamiliar thing. Like uh, you know, one of the first times that you use a defibrillator, you're going to be in the knowledge-based. Um, operating mode. When, if you're a nurse that does a daily defibrillator check and you're an ACLS instructor, you use them all the time. Then, when you use them on patients, you're in the skills based mode. So, the errors will be slips and lapses, and labeling, training, etc., will m- not make a difference. So, I think a big thing we can learn from aviation is that they look carefully at the type of error that has occurred. And then they design the solution to fit that type of error. In in healthcare, we're still just throwing everything at, a, at any kind of error that occurs. We've we've heard that checklists are good, so an error occurs, and we think we're going to develop a checklist to fix it without looking at whether the error occurred in a complex system versus a sy- simple system, whether it occurred when the human was in the automated skill based 
operating mode or whether they were in one of the other operating modes. So I think if we were to take one big lesson away from aviation today, it's to look at these kinds of things with that system safety engineering approach and figure out what solutions will be effective and sustainable. Terry, I want to bring you back now because uh, all your stuff is great stuff. But I, but we have emergency physicians listening to these programs. If you had to pick out the three or four errors in, in that we're doing in emergency medicine, or the the areas in emergency medicine where we can apply fairly simple techniques and actually change patient safety outcomes, what would they be? I mean, you're the expert at this. Tell us what we need to be looking at in our own departments. Well, I would start with two things. One, I'll start on an individual emergency physician basis. And, you know, things that I do in my daily practice when I'm working in the emergency department, um, things that I think are a hazard that we can fix. And one of the biggest issues I think we deal with is our problem with uh, task stacking. And normally, I I might have previously said interruptions and task stacking. And by task stacking, I mean we have six things that we're about to do and then a nurse comes up to us and tells us the uh, family's angry and they're going to leave. And so we, we go deal with that and we come back and we might remember four of the six things we're about to do. But one of the two that we don't remember happen to be the more important ones and the more critical ones in terms of safety. And so um, uh, that is probably one of the areas we really need to work on. We all have developed our own personal ways to deal with that. We, you know, in the area, in the era of the whiteboards, we used to make marks in a, many of us would make marks in a column to remember tasks we had to do on patients. Um, That's not always available to us anymore in the world of EDIS. Many of the EDIS systems haven't given us that option. But we need ways to manage our tasks. The, the, a, a, a secondary point that I want to bring up that's related to that is the fact that in healthcare, we tend to treat interruptions as always being bad. And in emergency medicine, we're very interruption-driven. Oftentimes, when we get busy, um, we're, we're only responding to interruptions in, in some cases. I think you can all think of times when that's happened. And... Uh, I was recently on a thesis committee of a graduate student who looked very deeply into the interruptions. She spent a lot of time in the ED taking data, and she found that more than half of the interruptions actually improved patient safety. Many of them were interruptions that occurred in order to resume a task that a physician had meant to do previously, and they had dropped it because of the number of, of tasks in front of them. So I, I'd say in terms of personal practice, that's probably our biggest area. But for people who are leaders in emergency medicine or in safety or risk management in emergency medicine, I'd say the biggest lesson in the area we need to focus are two things. One is the way that we respond to adverse events. And I think we've talked enough about that to, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. But we often respond with solutions that uh, a system safety engineer could look at and tell you there's n- that it's, it's 100% sure that there will be no effectiveness of the solution, and such as um, applying a training or labeling solution to a skills-based error. But the, the second thing is I think that we are trying to drive our safety system to become safer by responding to adverse events. And 
there's good data that's been around for years to show that there's about 600 near misses for every adverse event. And for us to really become safe, we need to know where the near misses are. And not just the near misses, but the hazards. And, you know, by hazards, I mean when you're working in the ED, you know where you know where you feel unsafe. You know where you feel like you just dodged that bullet and thank goodness I noticed that or thank goodness the family member mentioned to me at the last minute should the patient take their Coumadin dose? <laughs> you know, all these things that, that um, we depend on memory and things that are known scientifically not to be reliable. We depend on them uh, for 100%. So we need to learn where the near misses are and where the hazards are. And then we can't fix every hazard in the ED, but we can look at the ones that would have high stakes consequences if they led to an adverse event. And that's where we should be putting our resources. We should be thinking, for example, I'll use the Coumadin. It's high stakes if we miss a patient that's not on Coumadin. And uh, so we need to know every patient that comes in that's on Coumadin. And right now we rely on luck. We hope that we'll remember to ask. We hope that the patient knows what they're on. We hope there will be good medical records. And uh, that's an area that I think just as one example, that we need to design reliable systems so that we don't miss a patient on Coumadin. You know, you've, you've raised a lot. You've got into some real deep water here. The first one is the point you made that basically says the idea of multitasking is uh, crap, that we don't really multitask. Uh, and I fought that for years. Whenever they say, well, I'm doing six things at once. No, you're not. You're doing one thing. And you're doing six of them in some sort of order. But I don't think that multitasking actually exists. And maybe we need to learn how to stack up those things that we're going to do and prioritize them for action. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's fun that you brought that up because um, I recently wrote an editorial in Academic Emergency Medicine. I think you could find it if you Google Fairbanks and multitasking that makes an argument, you know, it's, a, it's an editorial that accompanies an, uh, a, a paper that talks about what you're talking about, Greg. And I think it comes down to semantics about whether we multitask or, or task stack. And I think it probably doesn't matter which it's called, but, but in emergency medicine, we do it more than any other field in healthcare. And I think we can make ourselves much safer by learning ways to manage the multiple tasks that are in front of us. Right now, we all have developed our own workaround systems because there's an inadequate formed system to help us handle this. Well, by the way, I, I brought that uh, particularly ter term up for a reason, Jerry. I have read your stuff. And the, the, the bottom line here is that if you look at all 24 specialties, the one that has the highest burnout rate, at least according to some papers published within the last couple of weeks, is emergency medicine. And I think, at least it's sort of my take on it, and I love to hear what you have to say, is that the greater uh, the amount of this multitasking or stacking of things that goes on, this sort of pressure, the more burnout we have. You notice that the dermatologists don't burn out much. Uh, it, right. they, it's a lot less than an emergency medicine because there's no such thing as a derm emergency, right? I mean, nobody's right. running up to you as a dermatologist saying, you got to get into that room. There's a pimple about to explode or something like that. It never happens. 
Well, I think right. also that um, we're sometimes our own worst enemies because, um, you know, these ERs have a reputation for making people wait. The ERs basically um, are generally busy and um, multiple tasks are being considered at, at one time. And that, that's a very stressful kind of thing to do day in, day out as part of your career that you'll know that uh, you are likely to be asked to do more things than you'd really feel comfortable with. I mean, the dermatologist sees one patient and then another patient and then another patient. And, and we certainly don't do that. Terry, I think one of the things that I've learned from your conversation is that um, those of us who work in emergency departments and who are maybe directors and nurse managers are really amateurs at um, trying to come up with um, solutions to problems because there is such a tendency to say, okay, let's make a checklist when somebody like you would say, you can make all the checklists you want, but in this situation, that's not going to that's not going to work. And so, what I see is the necessity for some people who know this business. At, and frankly, you know, I'm really impressed about your depth of knowledge on this. To um, kind of not let every emergency department stumble through this on their own, when in fact um, there's knowledge that could be shared that says, here are common problems in the emergency departments, here are um, some ways to consider uh, addressing them, and having smart people like you say, no, no, uh, this, is, this is the way you ought to approach the, some of these. I think that the, the idea of each department kind of scratching its head and figuring this out is obviously not going to be very productive. The other thing I, I, I'm aware of is, and we would go to the pharmacy and therapeutics meeting, and they would report on errors there. And the pharmacist would say, well, based on um, our, our numbers here, we're under-reporting errors. Basically, when the number of errors were reported were small, it wasn't assumed that, the fact, in fact, the number of errors was, in fact, small. It was assumed that we've missed a lot of opportunities to report errors instead, which was probably, uh, which was probably correct. So my sense is we need some professional help in this uh, area. And I guess we've gotten some help in that, you know, the Joint Commission says you cannot write MS anymore when you write, want to write morphine because some idiot will think you meant magnesium and give magnesium for the pain of a broken, broken hip. Um, so they've stepped in. But sometimes, you know, they haven't really kind of, They've done things that are not all uh, that do not appear all that credible, and so uh, they, we take them probably um, with not, you know, we kind of take them with a grain of salt. So, what do you, what do you think is the solution here, given the fact that we are amateurs and that there is a science behind this, but we don't know how to access it? Well, that's a great question because it presents one of the big challenges. I mean, we, um, our center, the National Center for Human Factors Engineering and Healthcare, is the only we we have about five safety science scientists, and we're the largest healthcare-based human factors group in the U.S. So we <laughs> there's obviously not enough resources to go around to do this, and this is one of the big problems. Is on one hand we say we need. Um, we need scientists to be involved with these kinds of things so that we can have the safety science data behind what we're doing. But 
there aren't enough going around. There's only so many safety scientists, and most of them work in the nuclear, aviation, or oil industries today, and not in not in healthcare. So I, I've thought about this a lot, and I, I'll be honest, I don't know the answer. But what I believe the answer is is the first step is to have people be able to look at these events through a different lens. And that doesn't take much. That You can go to a one or two hour seminar or maybe even listening to, to this CD today has, um, I'm, I'm the old guy, I'm still using CDs, maybe some people are downloading. But anyway, listening to this soundbite today might change the way you look at the next adverse event. And I think that's the first step is to have people understand that there are different types of situations. You just articulated it well. Sometimes errors can be fixed with some solutions and sometimes they can't. And the first step is having people to be able to recognize that so that the answer isn't just training, education, labeling. And then oftentimes with some very simple guidance, people can implement solutions in their own ED or in their own hospital once they've recognized that. But I think the second step is being able to recognize when that it needs to be escalated and when somebody needs to bring in a safety scientist. And there are safety scientists in just about every community. The um, And there's not one type of safety scientist, but it, if you're near a university and there's an industrial systems engineering or a organizational psychology department, they'll have people that their whole career is based on uh, system safety work and you can collaborate uh, or consult with, with somebody like that if you have other high risk industry based um, near you um, you can find people in aviation um, in many different types of high risk industries that employ safety scientists so I know that's not a really satisfying answer because we're not there yet, but I think the first step is understanding that we're not safer 12 years later because we've ignored the title of the thing that started the safety revolution. We've ignored that to err is human. And if you look at how we're trying to fix our problems today and over the last 12 years, it's still been to find a solution that focuses on fixing the person. But people will make these errors predictably every time. So we need to change our focus to looking at the system, what facilitated the error, and, um, and how to allow the error to happen but not to affect the patient next time it happens. You know, I think Demings has some things for us to look at. Uh, I was a huge Demings fan uh, during his, his early years. And you remember, he left the United States uh, where a lot of his ideas were rejected and went to Japan uh, right. and worked with the auto industry and essentially revolutionized the building of Japanese auto automobiles. What most people don't understand in the country was the great success of the Japanese auto industry was predictability and essentially not having to recall vehicles and, and excellent production standards, which were done by an American. And Demings always said the, that, that, that 85% of the problem was the system, not the person. And uh, he watched the American assembly line and said there was somebody at the end of the assembly line whose job it was to bang the hoods with a rubber mallet into position so that, that all the hoods would, would close if there was any problem. He, right. said, <laughs> he said, you need to get rid of that, that person and go back and figure out why you're putting the hoods on wrong. And, right. and uh, in Japan, he, empower, he empowered people on the line, the assembly line, 
uh, to push a button or do whatever they need to do to call attention to a problem. And I think basically we haven't taken that approach, which is everybody should be considered a safety engineer. And if they have something important to say, it shouldn't threaten their job when they raise an issue. And I, I think that in something as hierarchical as medicine, you know, it's very hard for the uh, assistant nurse to, to, to criticize the thoracic surgeon, you know, for the way he's putting in his stitches or something. I, I think that the culture is not set up to allow that kind of interaction in a lot of cases. Although I do agree that I think that um, the employees have the answers. They And if you ask them the right questions, I think that you will facilitate uh, identifying um, where problems are. And if you create a safe environment, they will help you um, um, solve those, uh, those problems. Certainly, there's a level of um, knowledge that we don't have that the, sa the safety engineers do that would facilitate getting to uh, solutions but I think employees are, are absolutely terrific at, at uh, finding and, 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 and uh, enunciating where they find uh, problems if we give them the opportunity and the incentives to do that. By the way, yeah. the uh, do doctors as a group do not take instruction well from people who aren't doctors. And uh, what we have to understand is that uh, some of these folks, they don't have to know how to take out the appendix to show us where the problems are in managing patients with appendicitis uh, or in, in other system questions. It's always good to remember that the Japanese code during the Second World War was broken by people who did not speak Japanese. Uh, sometimes it's a, it's a logic system question which has nothing to do with a medical detail. And, and we've been slow, I think, to take suggestion from, from other disciplines. Right. But yeah, let me actually, I, I think there's a good, really quick emergency medicine case that I think illustrates a lot that we're talking about. And uh, if we have time, I'll, I'll, I'll get it. Yeah, we it. do. We okay. do. Okay. Um, I th I want because this brings out some of what you're talking about, and also the way designing of systems and the way of recognizing when something happens to you as a frontline provider that it might not be just your error; it might be something we should fix for the system. And it, it's about defibrillators. It's one of my favorite cases, and we stumbled upon this a few years ago when we did a, a, a human factors method called a usability study on defibrillators, and we found that um, people were pressing the when they were um, meaning to shock sometimes they would press the power button and and shut down the defibrillator and we had some collateral evidence that there was this was happening after we wrote an editorial about it we um, a, a group um, public a group from Denmark looked back at some simulation data they had using emergency uh, I don't know if they were emergency physicians but using physicians in simulated cardiac arrest and they looked at how often this error had occurred and it had occurred. And also at the same time, I was involved with an EMS adverse event reporting system. And we got three reports from firefighters when, uh, where they had said that they hit, hit the power button when they intended to hit the shock button. So if you think about it, you've got somebody in cardiac arrest, you charge up the, the defibrillator and you press the, the, shock, the power button. Defibrillators just power down. And um, when they've been charged up, really 
kind of we intend to shock and time goes by it takes time to restart the the computer you know in the defibrillator and so you have two to three minute delay in shocking before you can shock again and compare that to the very common slide projector that we all use a powerpoint slide projector I've looked far and wide for years and I can't find one that doesn't do this but if you hit the power button on a slide projector it doesn't just shut down it says press power again to power down or it says are you sure you want to turn off it may be different words with every vendor but it all does the same thing and that action is a system design a design of that device that has taken into consideration the predictability of human error that somebody's going to hit the power button when they don't mean to and even though the consequences of powering down a slide projector are fairly low I can't think of any way we could kill a patient by doing that the vendor has designed the device to, to protect ourselves against that predictable error and give us a mitigation. And yet defibrillators are designed without that mitigation. And, and I think that's because in healthcare, we really depend on the people to do it right. And the attitude is, well, people that use defibrillators are doctors and nurses and paramedics. They're trained professionals and they won't make mistakes. So if you think of it from a system safety engineering standpoint, our medical devices are being designed with the idea that humans don't make mistakes. And that pushes in the attitude that you're both just talking about. And that is when, it, when a mistake occurs, we don't think, gee, this was designed in a way that let me do this. We just think, boy, I just did something stupid. And you may not tell anybody. Or if you do tell anybody, they, they may criticize you. And so the culture of healthcare makes us, number one, not know about the errors that are common, and number two, not correct them by design because we think, well, we just better teach people not to press the power down button. Actually, that's a great, great, great analogy. Um, uh, in, my, uh, in my life, I have a lot to do with projectors, and, uh, and I, I know exactly what you're talking about because you're right. If you push the power button in, inadvertently, it, it, it won't shut the machine down, and in that case, the reason is, is that light bulb costs about $300, and that light bulb has to be cooled down for a period of time. And if you do, and if and if you shut the machine down or unplugged it, there's a good chance that you would uh, destroy your $300 light bulb. Um, in that case, it's not a human being, but there was a there was a reason for that. It wasn't just um, just. It, because that they're kind of unique to projectors. Not all machines have it. Are you sure? And there was a reason that was uh, put there. And obviously, there should be a reason that that same kind of reason should work on defibrillators as well. Yeah. By the way, that same device should be installed on your computer to the uh, to the button that says uh, uh, "Respond to all." <laughs> uh, oh yeah. It, it yeah. ought to come up and say. Rethink this issue, Jack. Do you really want to send this to everybody? Um, right. I, I, I can tell you, uh, there's a few of those in my career that I would like to have back. But uh, hey, yes, I know that, that's a great <laughs> example too. Yeah. Well, and there are and, lots of errors that there are lots of missed opportunities for correcting human error in computers. Even the um, you know when you write, if you write. If I wrote in a in an email right now, Wednesday, August thirty first, two thousand twelve. There's no checker to to remind me that it's really Friday. And and I'll, I will say, just as a fun editorial comment, that in Windows Machine, you do have to go to the Start menu to stop it. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Um, listen, the, uh, 
we we've been going through some some fairly uh, obvious things here, but there's got to be some other behavioral things we can think of in your emergency room. Uh, and and one I'd like to throw out is I want the check box at the end that says for the nurse to, to check that says patient is awake, alert, feeling better and ambulatory and understands instructions. If you can't check that box, the patient has to be represented to the physician. I can't tell you the number of times that somebody has gotten out of there and one and and that can tell you so much about whether that patient can go home or not and a lot of times when i'm reviewing medical legal cases if i only had that kind of information it would have made it a lot easier to defend the physician although greg um those boxes get checked automatically because right now the joint commission requires you to make some statement with regards to the condition on discharge. So there's like three boxes and uh, they, they all get, they get checked um, routinely with the assumption that they're going home, they must be better. And um, so I think it's, it probably is an example where a checkbox, which sounds like the answer isn't, is not necessarily the answer. And um, the lesson I've learned today is that um, this is a lot more complicated than we, than we think. And there, we, we need to somehow accelerate the integration of the safety engineering stuff with, uh, with medicine, even in the, in, the, in the microcosm of just emergency medicine um, as a place to start. And so I, I'm trying to think of, Terry, is there some kind of course or book or something that can be done to uh, leap, jumpstart these efforts in a intelligent fashion rather than having every Tom, Dick and Harry think they can figure out how to do this. Yes. The answer is yes. And there are in, in the future we'll have more and we'll have, um, we'll have bigger ones, but I can tell you what's available now. Um, the, uh, um, university of Wisconsin, Madison has a one week course in the summer, uh, on, on system safety engineering and human factors that's specific to healthcare, and that's an excellent course. The uh, University of Michigan has a two-week course on system safety and human factors that's that's not specific to any any field, and that's probably uh, a great way to go too because we don't just need to hear about it in healthcare; we can learn about how it works in other in other fields. Uh, we um, there are there are many pockets of. Um, of this around the country, I know at, uh, in the Baylor healthcare system in in Texas, they have two human factors engineers, and they've developed um, coursework, and they're trying to train all of their folks. In our um, in the MedStar Health system here, where I am in in Washington, Baltimore area, uh, we've developed. Uh, uh, training curriculum that we're using both for medical students at Georgetown and for uh, folks in our in our hospitals. There aren't a lot of these courses yet, uh, but more are more are coming. And I think you're right. This is the first step is to raise awareness so that people look at these kinds of events uh, from from a different lens. Right, but everybody who is going to be in in administrative uh, roles, a director, an assistant director, that sort of thing. These are the people who need to go because the mm -hmm. real goal is you don't want to take every person who works and have to train them through all of these thoughts and ideas. You want those people trained to build systems 
so that the average guy can't screw it up, right? I mean, that's right. that's the real goal here is that uh, you've hired uh, a new tech and uh, we've set it up so that tech cannot kill somebody, uh, you know, without our permission. Uh, right, that they, right. That, that, that it really is uh, idiot proof. And the better we can make it idiot proof, probably the better we are. You know, they they now sell table saws uh, where as soon as it senses or it, it, and it has a way of sensing whether they've got your finger or not, and it immediately puts a break on the saw. Why? Because right. they decided you are going to have guys who, you know, who have had too much to drink and decide to cut with their table saw. And, or, uh, or, or we should say there, there are sober people that are paying attention to what they're doing. That are that are doing it right every day that will have that error occur, and so we really do need the protections. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I think that the, your your points are great, and and there are um, good examples around the country of of EDs that have found ways to do this. One I think is w- worth mentioning is the homegrown health IT system at Vanderbilt. Um, has a, corrects an error that's been really hard to fix in emergency medicine, and that is communicating with the patient about how to follow up with incidental findings from radiology studies. And uh, their system, if I understand it correctly, one of your listeners can probably correct me if not with a letter, but I, I believe that it has a text search on the radiology um, readings, the dictations by the radiologist, and picks up keywords um, like mass or you know th- things that might indicate an incidental finding that needs follow-up. And it presents on discharge, it presents the person writing the discharge electronically with the ability, when those words are picked up, the ability to, to paste a message into the discharge instructions that tell the patient to follow up on this. And so we've taken something that we're currently relying on memory, not just memory, but the ability to notice something even through shift change when there's been a change of providers to see that there's an incidental finding that needs to be followed up on. We've recognized that telling people to do it right next time is not the answer. Education, training, discipline, policy is not the answer. And they've put in a system solution to fix that problem. And I'll give one other example that's similar about how it wasn't done right. Um, at, at a hospital I'm familiar with, there was a shift in the lab IT system so that when, order, when the results were coming back to the emergency department from the lab, if there was some piece of a panel that had to be sent for, you know, dilution or you know how when they're way out of whack, they've got to be hand counted, etc., then the rest of the results would result out just completely missing the line with the bad one. So, for example, if the hematocrit was critically low, they'd result out the rest of the CBC and the hematocrit would be missing. Well, Mm. you know, even if you're thinking about a crit, maybe it's a GI bleed or a um, sickle cell patient, when we're busy, no matter how conscientious we are, we're all scanning the results to look for the H's and the L's and that's our way of flagging um, what abnormalities we have to pay attention to. And when this was recognized as a problem, there were two solutions put in place. One is the emergency physicians were told to be more careful and make sure that they weren't missing this, that, you know, missing anything on the panel before they discharged the patient. And the second thing is the lab technicians were all told, and a policy was written to tell them never to result out um, a panel until all of the all of the results were uh, were available and predictably 
those systems did not work and there was a recurrence of near misses and events and uh, finally the hospital recognized that there needed to be a system solution to this problem. But that's something that if we just increase our knowledge a little bit about knowing what's going to be effective and what's not, we'd recognize from the start that a solution that involves telling people to remember to fix a problem is not going to be an s- effective solution. It may improve things a little bit, but it's not going to get us to 100%. Sorry, you know, I, think, I think our time is, is uh, just about up. Um, Gregory, do you have a, a line of the month for us? I do have a wine of the month, which means uh, this month, Rick, we're not going to get to any papers. We're not getting any complaint letters. We're not going to get to any no, of those I think, things. Actually, let me, I, I got some great papers for next month uh, that we can do. But I, I think that this uh, hour and 10 minutes with Terry was terrific. And I think it, it's something that we've never covered before. And so we'll just postpone those for uh, one month. Okay. All right. Well, listen, we're going to uh, journey Uh, back to the Sonoma Valley uh, with some uh, recent uh, papers and reviews on the wines. And I'm going to pick out one that I'm sure most of our listeners have ever tried, and that's uh, Novi Family Wines, N-O-V-Y, Family uh, Wines. And, of course, when you're talking about Sonoma, you're talking about Zinfandel's, the principal blending wine of the state of California. Uh, this is a vineyard from the Russian River Valley. They turn out a, a pure Zinfandel, which is uh, for 13 bucks a bottle. Note that, $13 a bottle, rated as high as some of the Sonoma wines, selling at $80 a bottle. Now, you can spend 13 you can spend 80 but it's Novi Family 2010 Zinfandel, if you don't, if your wine uh, shop doesn't care it, have them give them a call and get a case sent to you. This is terrific stuff. So there you go, Rick. Hey, listen, I, that brings up the human factors engineering part here. What about the car that has this thing that you have to blow into it and determines your blood alcohol level? And if it's over a certain amount, it won't start the car. Where is that device? Yeah, well, I had to disassemble mine. It was just a problem. It's just a be, pain in the ass every there time. There all kind of workarounds. I can yep, tell you that. Workaround. <laughs> workarounds. Hey, Terry, thanks a lot. I really appreciate your taking this time with us and putting this, this together for us. I found it very enlightening. I also found it a little discouraging because it's clear that the you know that amateurs really uh, will stumble a lot in this process. Well, you know, Einstein once asked uh, was once asked to simplify the theory of relativity. Uh, and he sort of looked at the guy and he says, I'll make it as simple as I can, but no simpler than it actually is. And I think that's the problem when you hear people who really understand safety engineering. We'd like there to be a simple answer. And sometimes it isn't that simple. Great point. Thanks, All Terry. right. Uh, this is Greg and Rick. Rick. Signing off for uh, for the month of September, and uh, we'll be probably doing some recording at the uh, national meeting in Denver, and look to see you next month. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 